Hey everybody, welcome to Hope For Our Times. And uh, listen, we have an exciting time uh, with uh, my interview today. I am with David Tao, former major in the IDF, also tank commander, Israeli security, I think for 13 years, Israeli security. No, security was much shorter. Four much years. shorter, four years security and uh, embassy in France. In Are you France. allowed to talk about any of these things? Uh, well, I was uh, actually officially a diplomat in Paris and a diplomat in, in Cyprus for okay. altogether about four years. So you're a lot more important than I ever was. <laughs> so, you, uh, so David, you have a, a really fascinating um, story with with well, yeah. Yeah, to us in America. And especially when I look at it based on the Bible and even Bible prophecy, and uh, the nation of Israel is very close to my heart for uh, various reasons. And one of them is because it's close to God's heart. Yes, and, and sitting here today, again, with everything that's going on, I really do appreciate uh, the amount of love and, and support for Israel that I felt. And Hammett here with, with you, Pastor Tom, and, and with other people, you know, around the country, it's, it's yeah. totally heartwarming, especially in this time of balagan, of, of uncertainty yeah. that we're going through right yeah. now. Yeah, lots of uncertainty. But with the heartwarming uh, feelings that you're getting, I'm just going to tell you, it has to do with a lot with the people that you happen to be getting connected with, because there's not... Uh, not everybody's pro-Israel, even within the church movements. And that's true, and, and that's uh, part of why we're here. We need yeah, more is. people to, to, to kind of tune into this and to hook into to what Israel is and how important Israel is on all these different, I think, levels that we're going to be talking about yeah. today. So this is what we're going to be talking about a lot. We're going to talk a little bit about the IDF, okay. the Valley of Tears. All right. uh, people are going to be uh, learning a lot of things today. We're going to talk about 1967, right. 1948, some things that people haven't heard about before. I'm going to ask you about the temple in Israel, and is there an excitement for some people to want to build the temple? Um, uh, pro uh, also, I want to ask you a little bit about the Messianic movement in Israel, because that's part of your history uh, when uh, you grew up as a, as a kid, okay. and some of the things that you went oh, through. So your, your dad was a pastor in Israel, so right? We're going to be here for three weeks now? Uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> okay. oh, oh, and that's just the beginning. I have more. I want to ask you about Iran and Israel oh, wow. and the Bible passages regarding Ezekiel 38, where we talk about the gas and the oil that's being discussed. Covered. Let's do it all. So we have a lot to talk about. I think uh, all of our viewers are going to be quite engaged in this. So let's just let's just start with this. Uh, IDF soldier, also tank commander. Mm -hmm. um, you experienced war uh, many, battles many times. Uh, many times, and you've talked to me a little bit about the Valley of Tears. Hmm. Um, and and for my sake, uh, I'd like to get further into that, but also to to let all of our uh, viewers know, because most of them have never heard it before. I've seen it uh, being up on the Golan Heights, but I'm going to have you refresh my memory. What is it? Your involvement. Uh, why is it called the Valley of Tears? Well, let's tie it all together. One of the reasons yeah. this is a nice hot subject is because HBO has put on a television series that is originally uh, produced by Israel's Channel One, which is the story of the Valley of Tears. It's called the Valley of Tears, uh, and it's the story of the 1973 Yom Kippur War and everything that that meant. And um, 
our Yom Kippur War is, I would probably say, akin to or similar to the experience that you went through in Pearl Harbor. A sneak attack, you didn't know where it was coming from, and it it kind of shook you to your core. Uh, 1973, the Yom Kippur War, a sneak attack that was was perpetrated by Syria and Egypt together and and shook Israel to the the core. And this is one of the first, well, there's been a couple of movies about it, but this series actually goes into the Israeli experience. Um, I've been watching the promos because I got to be very careful about how and what I watch because they seem to be very, very realistic. I'm going to be, we're going to be watching, I think, sometime this week. And uh, it explains what happened in 1973 on the Golan Heights in the, the, the Kunetra opening or the Kunetra gap underneath Bental. There's a small valley where thousands of Syrians were killed in the battles, hundreds of Israelis are killed in the battle, and that's why it, it, where it gained the name the Valley of Tears. Okay. So. Now, when, when uh, I've been up on Mount Bentel, they have the coffee shop up there, my Beautiful. favorite coffee shop in the world. It really is. Um, and, uh, but when you're looking down the valley, you see tanks. As you're going up to Mount Bentel, you see various tanks. They're no longer there. They've been out of commission a long time. Is that all part of that area? That's all part of the battles. I mean, the, the most, uh, how do you say, uh, harsh battles, tank battles uh, that were fought since World War II were fought uh, both in the Sinai Peninsula and on the Golan Heights as part of that. Um, maybe a couple of words. The 1973 war was a sneak attack. Israel was surprised. Remember, we had won the 1967, mm-hmm. the Six-Day Wars, in, in a very one-sided fashion. And again, not that people didn't die, but it was a very, how do you say, military, mm-hmm. uh, Success. extremely successful military uh, war. And Israel allowed that pride to go to his head, and we actually dropped the ball. And then we were not paying attention, not from a political, not from a diplomatic, and not from an, an intelligence point of view. And we actually got surprised mm-hmm. and in 1973 um, again this is the the beginning of the digital age so most of the weapons back then are Vietnam era uh, ex-world War two you're not talking about highly digitized systems but mechanical more mechanical systems and back then the tank was probably the main battlefield chariot, mm-hmm. if you want to put it like that. And uh, the Egyptians swept across the Suez Canal with, I think if I remember together, something like 32 divisions. And the Syrians came across the Golan Heights with something like 17 divisions and uh, literally trying to push the Israeli forces from the Golan Heights all the way down to the, uh, the Jordan River and to our main water mm-hmm. source. It was a very fierce battle. And one of the things that most people don't understand about Israeli military, I mean, we live in a very harsh environment. We know it's coming. Uh, We all go into the army for three years. Uh, Men go in for three years, women go in for two years. We're all trained in our military uh, positions. But after you finish your three years in regular army, uh, you go back to regular civilian life. And most of us were uh, reservists, meaning like your mm-hmm. uh, National Guard, mm-hmm. okay? You have a, 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 a military role, you have your equipment in a warehouse somewhere in the country, and the idea was that 
in case of a war against enemies, like the Yom Kippur War was, the young army, the regular army, very young, by the way, I was 18 when I went in, and I was uh, 20 when I became a lieutenant. So it, it, that's how young the army actually is. It's supposed to hold off the enemy. And Israel's main might were the reserve units, which means sirens go off, the whole country scrambles, everybody gets his uniform, goes to the base where his equipment is, gets in his tank, and drives off to defend the country. The thing is that there's a gap of probably between 24 and 48 hours uh, between when the young army gets into battle and until the reserves come into play. That is the critical gap, and in 1973, we almost didn't hold it together. Yeah. So with the, the, the gap there, that 24-48 hour gap, the reserve, they were experienced from 1967. Uh, so in these younger people in the battle, they didn't have, they didn't have that experience, being 19, 18, 19, 20 years old. 20 years old. Not yeah. only experienced, they were completely surprised. And, and Yom Kippur, day of the holiday. Yeah. It was the, the holiest day. Holiday. Everything's closed. I mean, skeleton crews are actually left on, on duty. So, yes, our enemy did decide to pull, pull a fast one. Yeah. So how old were you? Uh, well, not, that's not mine. I'm, I'm you were young. I was, yeah. I was 11 years old. Okay, you were young, but you're, was your dad? My dad was scrambled and okay. actually did take part. Again, like everybody else in Israel, everybody's got his war. Everybody's got its own battle. So the Yom Kippur War basically was a major shift in what happened to us. The series, the Valley of Tears, actually depicts how surprised we were and how devastated we are when we realize that we, we'd almost lost the country. Um, but it was a very harsh war, fought on the Golan Heights, and um, I'm going to say this maybe, and I don't know how many of our, our viewers have actually been in, in these kind of situations or talked to anybody. War is horrific even if you win the war. Uh, the way I tend to say it is that even winning the war comes at a terrible price. The Yom Kippur War was won by Israel from a military point of view, uh, but it came at a horrific price, oh. and, and we went to a depression. We kicked out Golda Meir, who was our famous woman prime mm -hmm. minister. The whole country went into depression after the Yom Kippur War. So 1973, I think, was a major watershed moment as far as Israel's defense. And um, maybe this is a good place to say something else also. After 73, I think our, our enemies realize that they can't take Israel on, on the battlefield. I mean, you cannot buy enough tanks, you mm -hmm. cannot buy enough planes to destroy Israel. I mean, they had the element of surprise. Classic example, I mean, go, go to the series, you're gonna see it. They had the element of surprise, they had huge numeric superiority, uh, and they actually managed to break through, but at the end of the day, they lost the military battle. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was lost. The Syrians actually were pushed back. Not only were they pushed back to the border, we were on our way to Damascus when the world decides, uh -huh, you guys, you know, let's stop the war. Yeah. It's really interesting that when the enemy is coming this way, nobody says anything. When we're going that way, everybody freaks out. Yeah. But I think after that, I think our enemy realized you're not going to take Israel on on the battlefield. And that's the beginning of the change from the physical war that Israel fought in 1948, 67, and 73 to the more media, virtual, uh imagery, or even spiritual war that's being fought mm -hmm. today. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, you know, I'm just thinking uh, war is horrific, and 
Um, I think of my son. Uh, he had to fill out a selective service here in America. And the thought of the U.S. going into war bothers me. Uh, but And I don't think, you know, when you're sitting here uh, doing Bible studies and doing YouTubes and uh, things like that, you can talk about war in a way that's just not real to you. But the problem is war is real, and people do die on both sides, and it's awful. And you being a tank commander, mm -hmm. you've experienced it. You've told me how it's just the, the reality check. A little bit about that. And, and, and as a tank commander, what is it that you oversaw? Did you oversee uh, how many tanks or well, like a group? And well, I was a company commander, a CEO okay. of, of an armor company for a while, which is uh, 11 tanks. And two APCs, two trucks, probably 110 men. By the way, in biblical terms, Roman terms, I was a centurion. Centurion, it's a, it's, okay. It's more yeah. or less 110 men, 100. 100 okay. and something yeah. men. Um, maybe a couple of words about that because, okay, this this might be, if I, do I have a couple of minutes oh, yeah. kind of to share you a couple bet. of things? My war was in 1973. Uh, my war was 1981, what we call the First Lebanese War. We went into southern Lebanon in order to clear out the Palestinian Liber Liberation Organization, which was a terrorist organization that was blowing up planes and killing athletes in, in Munich. But uh, we went into Lebanon to clear them out and create a, a more defensive area on the northern border of Israel. Uh, but my battle was against Syrian armor, meaning I'm in a tank and I'm fighting against Syrian tanks. I'm in an American tank uh, and I'm fighting against Syrian crews in Russian tanks. And uh, maybe just on, on the edge, just a little bit of, of my experiences because, listen, I was 19 years old mm -hmm. when I went in. I was a little baby sergeant and I still remember being excited, you know, and, and you, you, know, you see the movies about it and you see things, you know, and it, it's, there's an excitement mm -hmm. kind of mixed into it. I still remember being excited uh, until probably about three days in when I find myself literally in combat with Syrian armor. Uh, I'm not gonna go into all the military details, but to make the short story short, the long story short, our first target was a Syrian 60s T-62 that we took out from about 2.4 kilometers. And I still remember that my first reaction, again, it's it's highly professional, and, and uh, I'm, I'm waiting to see the series to see if they manage to convey the the complexity of, of, of a tank crew kind of, you know, doing this. And when we hit the target the first time, there was, there was jubilation. I mean, I was happy. I was excited. I mean, listen, we did it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not easy. And it was a complex series and, and you hit the target and the target explodes. Um, it sounds like a video game. Mm -hmm. And I'm jumping up and down, but my gunner, the guy who actually looks at the enemy target through the scope, who pulls the trigger, actually freaked out. And, and when I actually asked him to put another round into the target, he kind of, I realized he was crying. He said, you know, David, they're all dead. We don't need to. And, and again, and when, when something like that explodes like that, you know, just like all the Hollywood explosions you've ever seen, uh, nobody survives. And I remember being upset with him for not taking the moment mm -hmm. the way I took it. Uh, I actually went down and turned his seat around and slapped him because he was going hysterical on me. About two days later, um, we drove by another T-62, and I jumped off my vehicle to go see what's going on, one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life, but okay, I'm 19 years old, I'm allowed to do this. 
And standing next to that burnt out Syrian T-62, not the one I'd taken out, but same idea, I realized that it wasn't a target, it wasn't a video game, it wasn't Hollywood, it was actually four dead people. And it's hard for for me to say, it's not that you understand it, there's something deeper than understanding, there's that you internalize that difference. And my reaction was not to cry, but I started throwing up. I couldn't stop throwing up for three days. When I realized that it's not a target, it's not, it's actual people. And what I'm trying to convey is that our country, our freedoms come at a price. A price that I had had to pay even though uh, I didn't come out wounded and I didn't die in battle but I paid a price by having to kill other people. And don't get me wrong, I don't think I did anything wrong. I did what was needed and what was right, but again, it comes at a price. Mm -hmm. And I think, and one of the things that I'm kind of sensing in the States is the United States doesn't appreciate the price it has had to pay, or some of the people Mm -hmm. in the United States, don't appreciate the price that it has had to pay for us to be able to stand here and complain about the United Mm -hmm. States, which is part of the the story. People who've had to be willing to do some of those Mm -hmm. things, to put their lives on the line, to, to do things in the name of defending the country that go with them and, and stay with them, you know, down mm-hmm. through, through the ages. So, again, this is a part of who Israel is and what Israel is. Uh, but again, I think, to tie this into where we came mm-hmm. from, the battle is a different kind of battle today, which is why I'm here. I don't drive a tank anymore. I come here to defend my country because I think that there is a, a growing threat to Israel that has taken place on all the different levels, including the political, including the image, including the, the delegitimization of Israel as a nation, mm-hmm. and including the spiritual battle that's yeah. being fought. Yeah, I look at it from uh, my perspective being somebody who studies Bible prophecy, and I see a spiritual problem behind all of this. I'm looking at America, and there's people in America who do not get, I, I, I think of vets, like my dad's a veteran. He's 90 years old, but he's a veteran. Um, and I think of him, and then I think of people who fought in Vietnam, Iraq wars, and what they gave. And now I look in our own country and thinking, this is just, it's, it's appalling, it's devastating to watch what's happening. And then you describing what you went through. This is what people go through. Uh, in war, and we don't grasp it, the price of freedom. And, and then when I look at freedom in the Bible, I want to go back to the beginning of the nation of Israel. The whole story is fascinating with Israel. Well, let me add one more thing before we change this subject. Uh, and, and this is something that um, a lot of people don't realize is that when you come back from these kind of situations, it's very hard to talk about it. So. When you meet your veterans, the people who have gone through this in in the name of American freedom, in the name of the United States, even if they don't talk about it, realize what they've gone through, and they do need your support and appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, Let's go back to Israel. Uh, I want to go all the way back to 1917. Oh, Uh, Balfour Declaration. Uh, World War One, Balfour Declaration. We'll go, we'll we'll go from there. 1948, 
1967. And we're going to end up uh, talking about what uh, currently, I want to get to the oil and gas situation in Israel because it affects Bible prophecy, I believe. Totally. So, so let's start. Israel be, uh, is starting to become a nation again. The Zionist movement uh, began in the late 1800s officially. Uh, and then we hit 1917, Balfour Declaration. Um, Lord Balfour. Um, Born-again Christian, by the way, as far okay. as everything that we understand. And, and reading Bible prophecy saw the beginning of the remnant of the Jews coming back to their homeland. And what he did very interesting, and, and others like him, and not him, the only one, was bring the biblical prophecy element from the history channel, mm -hmm. from the prophecy channel, into the political arena, which is why he wrote a letter to the representative of the Jews and said that the British Empire, which was the empire at the time, would actually look favorably on creation of a homeland for the Jewish people which was the first time in 2,000 years that somebody was willing to politically move towards a place where the Jews could come back to. That is remarkable. Isaiah wrote uh, in, in the Old Testament uh, that God would call Israel back a second time. And uh, so we see, I believe that's the connection here. Okay, so there's prophecy yeah. that is being yeah. fulfilled on the political mm -hmm. arena. And Lord Balfour saw that, a believer, looks at the Bible, and he played a part in it. So anybody who has a problem with the Balfour Declaration, by the way, and maybe this is where mm -hmm. we should start kind of making these kind of connections. <clears throat> anybody who has a problem with Balfour, the Balfour Declaration has a problem with prophecy being fulfilled. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't really realize, because I, I, I heard in, in the rhetoric, the Balfour Declaration uh, a while ago, you know, hit its 100-year mark, and everybody was all excited about it. And then you hear people saying, oh, it's the most terrible thing that ever, yeah. ever happened. And, and some of the people who were complaining about the Balfour Declaration and what it meant were actually Christians. And, and I'm saying yeah. to myself, how can a Christian who believes the Bible have a problem with somebody saying, the Jews should fulfill the, prepared, the, the the biblical prophecy. Yeah. Well, I look at it, you can go from 1917 to World War II, so pre-1948, um, to World War II, you have people within the Nazi regime that claim to be Christians, um, both Protestant and Catholic, that were very anti-Semitic. And, you know, you know I, so you look at that and you go, it's disturbing. Um, talking well, with Christianity broke away from the Jewish people at some point. So, way, way back. In way the, back. Way it, back in the beginning. It, 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 I can I can find it in the, in, in the New Testament in the Book so, of Revelation. So, so they break in, away from from yeah. the Jewish people, and I'm glad to say that it didn't break away completely. But uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, when I think about the fact that. Before the rebirth of the state of Israel, the Jewish people were, were nothing. We were the, the scum of the universe. And in Europe especially, we were persecuted in, in every way possible and every place possible. Who could have thought that the Jews would ever come back mm -hmm. to their homeland? And, you know, lo and behold, here yeah. we are. And God says in the Bible, again, I will gather them from the four corners of the earth when they're gathered back a second time in the latter days. We have all these prophetic things. So Israel is given, a, or the Jewish people are given a homeland. Did Lord Balfour declare it was going to be the, 
did he lay out the boundaries? He didn't do that, did no, he? No, no, no. And and again, it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears until it happened. Uh, Lord Balfour, the Balfour Declaration was the first time a political entity, a political power, said we're going to kind of make this happen. But that wasn't the end of the story. And these pioneers had to come back here and, against all odds, actually make the desert bloom, create a viable Jewish society in the middle of something that there was nothing here. I mean, this was if you want to if you want to understand what Israel was at the time. Um, a guy named Samuel Clemens toured mm -hmm. the land and wrote a very interesting, interesting travel journal about the land in a very descriptive form. Uh, we know him in his other name as Mark Twain, but when you read Mark Twain's book, about the land at the time actually he has a, uh, the famous quote there land of milk and honey who's calling this the land of milk and honey it's desolate it's bandits it's dusty and malaria i mean you know and it was you, you see what he's depicting mm -hmm. you go back to the same places that he is actually mm -hmm. depicting in his book and it's completely different yeah. you go to the Jezreel valley and, and it's it's flourishing and it's it's fruitful and the main difference is you know, we're back. Mm -hmm. It is remarkable. See, but even that is prophetic because God says uh, the land will become desolate in, in yeah, when, 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 during the diaspora. Uh, and then when the Jews come back, the desert would bloom. And, and you look at, you'd have vineyards and fruit. And it's just amazing to go to Israel and to see these things is just absolutely remarkable. And I've seen the pictures from way back when it was swampland up in the Galilee region and just malaria infested and what needed to be done to bring that, to bring and that around. And here it is, and we've done it. And what I find amazing is that that wasn't the end of the story mm -hmm. because after World War One, the British Empire is in control of this area and Jews start coming back. But uh, we move into the Second World War and the Jew and the British Authorities who were looking favorably on the creation of Holland actually close, close off the borders and don't allow yeah. Jews to come back. And we were actually running away from Europe from the Holocaust, and the British were turning yeah. people back and sending them back to Europe. Yeah, trying to trying to get out of the Holocaust in Europe, trying to get into, into. this land that was supposed to be the land for the Jewish people, and not being allowed to uh, to enter into the land of Israel. It's just a really and, and even after. The Holocaust and after World War mm -hmm. II and after the 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 the, uh, the camps are open, um, Jews who had literally survived the camps. Okay, uh, my father-in-law, you know, who, who's passed away, actually was in a camp in Europe. Had managed to survive World War II in a, in a European camp. Uh, comes down to the Mediterranean Sea, was put on a how do you say, a trawler that was bought up somewhere in the United States and was used to illegally bring Jews to the Holy Land because the British weren't allowing them in, was caught by the British and spent another two years in a British concentration camp because he wasn't oh. allowed to come to his homeland before 1948 opened the borders and they were allowed to come back in. Meaning being mm -hmm. in a German concentration camp, then in a British concentration camp, just because, because he wanted to come to his homeland. Yeah. That's yeah. ludicrous. People don't hear about that at all. Well, see the movie Exodus. You, yeah. You'll see a picture yeah. of that. Yeah, it's a great movie. I have seen it, but but unless you're unless you study, you don't think this. You just think oh, the the war was over. Jews went got to go to Israel. It didn't happen that way. Anti-Semitism was still huge, and we fast forward so the war's over. It hit 1948, 
Israel's officially recognized as a nation again, which was a miracle in and of itself. Well, we just we just actually had the hundred year anniversary of the UN Council actually deciding that Israel would be would be given a homeland. Now, not all of Israel. They actually partitioned what we call the Holy Land into two. Half was supposed to go to the Israelis and half was supposed to go to the Arabs. Uh, and they actually voted. It's one of the few times that the United Nations ever voted for anything positive uh, yeah. in, in 1947. And when they voted that, so for the first time, the United Nations is saying there's supposed to be a Jewish nation here. The thing is that Israel said, David Ben-Gurion said, okay, it's small, we, it's not what we wanted, it's not what we promised, this is not all of our biblical homeland, yeah. but at least there's a place for the remnant to come home. Uh, Israel, the Jews said, yes, thank you, wonderful, great, and we started building, and the Arabs said, no, and started shooting. Not going to happen that way. We start and building, they start shooting. Almost almost right away from, uh, was May 14, 1948, it was... No, right from there. That, yeah. That's the beginning of what we call 1948 War of Independence, uh, where five Arab nations attacked from all different directions, and this tiny little entity of Holocaust survivors and pioneers who have, you know, um, submachine guns and, and Molotov cocktails managed to hold off five yeah. major armies. Yeah, that was huge. Um, I think that was also the birth of the Israeli Air Force was at that point. Totally. Yeah, and that's, a fa that's another subject in and of itself <laughs> that is totally worth getting into to see how that began. Uh, maybe we can do a, a video on that sometime. Um, so 1948, there's so much there in that war. Um, didn't Was it 1948 or 1960? I think it was 1948 that created the so-called Palestinian refugee. Or well, he, here, here's, here's how it works. There were Arabs living in the land, and mm -hmm. then there were Jews living in the land, there were Arabs living in the land, and David Ben-Gurion, the Israeli government, the Israeli people actually at the beginning of the War of Independence said to the Arabs, listen, we're here, you're here. This is our ancestral homeland, but we understand that there's things that have happened over the years. Let's live in peace. And actually our Declaration of Independence states that if you are a part of the state of Israel, your language would be uh, secured, your property would be uh, defended, your rights, uh, your, your religion would be accepted, and Arabic is the second official language. There is a large Arab minority, and I'm saying it's a minority, but I think 20% of the population of the state of Israel are Arabs that did stay and listen to what we said and became part of the Israeli story. And a lot of people don't realize mm -hmm. that, uh, but 20% of Israel's citizen population are Arab Muslims. And they live among us, they work among us, they're prosperous, they're the highest educated Arabs in the world. I mean, you gotta live among the Jews mm -hmm. to be highly educated. More Arabs have university degrees in Israel than they have anywhere else per capita in the world. And they live among us, but a large amount of them listened to what their government said, listened to what their leadership said, bowed down to their fear, and packed up a suitcase and went off into Lebanon or went off into Jordan, thinking that they would be able to come back after the great Arab nation mm -hmm. wipes Israel off the map. Israel wasn't wiped off the map, and they're still in their camps, some, or their descendants are in the camps. That is how the Arab refugee problem was created. So you have the, it's a, 
some went to Syria? Is that where some of the Syrian well, they, they, they spread all, all okay. over the Middle Jordan. East. Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Egypt uh, the West Bank, what was then under Jordanian control. And again, the idea was that they would be able to come back once Israel is, is destroyed. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to say Israel wasn't destroyed, but that's where the problem comes from. But the Arab nations have left them in their desolate situation mm -hmm. in order, I mean, with no love for their own kin, in order to be a, a, a thorn in the side of any situation in the Middle okay. East. So they said, uh, leave Israel, come home, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, wherever, and then as soon as we eliminate the Jewish people, you can you move would. back into the land. So it didn't work out that way. Thank and goodness. then we have this term Palestinian. Well, the, here's the thing, and, and the term Palestine comes from the second Jewish rebellion uh, when the Jews stood up against the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago and said to the Roman Empire, go home. By the way, we rebelled twice against yeah. the Roman Empire. Once they destroyed the temple, and that's yeah. that's a whole <laughs> video in itself. Uh, but the second time, the Romans were really upset with the Jews. Nobody rebelled against Rome twice. I mean, we were the only ones who rebelled twice. So Hadrian says, okay, we want to disassociate the Jews from Judea. One way to do that, because the temple was destroyed, mm -hmm. so we'll move them out. We'll, 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 we'll send them into exile. That's part of the way. But the, they, again, they already tried that, and the connection between the Jews and Judea was always strong. The second way, they said, let's change the name. It's not going to be called Judea anymore. We're going to call it somebody, something else. And they said, okay, what should we call it? And a little part of the coast where the Philistines used to live was called Palestina. And they took the name Palestina because us and the Philistines really couldn't stand each other. And they spread that out over the whole country and renamed the country Palestina in order to poke a finger in the Jewish eye. A lot of people don't know that the term Palestine has a Jewish connection. The only thing is that... Palestine never was a political entity. It was always a geographical area. Uh, the example that I like to use is like the Rocky Mountains. I mean, everybody knows where the Rocky Mountains are. Everybody, nobody's going to say there weren't Rocky Mountains, okay? Uh, but there never was a country called the Rocky, mm -hmm. the state of Rocky Mountains. There never were a people called the Rocky Mountaineers. There never was a king of the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. It's been Spanish, it's been American, it's, sometimes it's this state. So we all know what Palestine was, but there never was a people, mm -hmm. a country, a nation, a currency that is connected to Palestine. Never until 1967. Because now the Arabs are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, okay, we need an identity. How, what are we going to call ourselves? Mm -hmm. We're Arabs. Nobody called us anything but Arabs. So it's the Arabs living in? Living in the Rocky Mountains, or in this case, in Palestine. Yes, okay. In Palestine. So that's how we get the national term or the national creation of the Palestinian people. It's a, it's a totally modern entity that was created only in 1967 mm -hmm. after the Arabs tried to destroy Israel the second time and didn't succeed and the Palestinians, Palestinians <laughs> the people who lived here who are now in wherever they're in, in the Gaza they're in the West Bank they're, they're all spread over and they're saying wait a minute wait a minute I mean who are we and they decided to call mm -hmm. themselves by the way you know who invented the, the whole idea where did it come from or the, the to current, create the, the a Palestinian narrative. nation. Yeah. Who uh, invented it? Most people would think Yasser Arafat. No, the KGB. 
the KGB told Arafat, you don't have a case unless you can create a national identity. So they take the name Palestine. And they turn the people into Palestinians. Palestinians and that's where it comes from. And that explains why there's no coins, no archaeology, nothing it. supports them. What I find interesting also is when I look at a map currently of the West Bank, mm -hmm. Gaza, uh, those two areas specifically, um, in the West Bank, you have Judah and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. And they've all, they were a problem in biblical times. <laughs> and all three of those areas, Gaza, because Samson wouldn't deal with, Samson got messed up in Gaza. Um, the, the tribe of Dan, you, you look at the history of Gaza and the history of Judah and Samaria and uh, with the Assyrians yeah. and the Babylonians. And here we are today in 2020 dealing with the Balaga. the same areas Which and the Balaga and the and the and Hadrian was so effective at changing the name to Palestine that here we are today dealing with it. It has been a devastating blow to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people for well, for uh, 1,900 years almost. Let's, let's put it this way. First of all, it's not really a devastating blow because think about it. Um, we're here. We're back. That in itself is 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 a miracle. I mean, no yes, other people is, yeah. have lost their ancestral mm -hmm. homeland, have been spread across the world, and managed to keep their tradition, their idea, their language, by the way, together in such a way as the Israelis have. So, I know it, there there are problems, but we're back, and and again. I think even the Palestinian problem has changed over the time of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, Palestinians started off, okay, the, the, the Arab world started off with trying to kick Israel off the map militarily. Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, all together attacked Israel and tried to wipe us off militarily. Didn't work. They more or less give up. Gave up. We have a peace agreement with the Egyptians. We have a peace agreement with the Jordanians. And now, now that it's really mm -hmm. warm, but it's there. Uh, the Palestinians said, if we're not going to do this militarily from, you know, from the outside, mm -hmm. let's do it from terroristically from the inside. So you have the terrorist movements of the 1970s and 1980s blowing up airplanes, hijacking this. I mean, TWA airplanes are blown up here mm -hmm. and, and all this, the whole Entebbe raid yeah. and everything that was connected to that. But even that didn't work. Even that didn't work. Uh, next, they said, OK, we'll do public uprising. We'll throw stones at cars and Molotov cocktails, and we'll push Israel into a corner. But even that didn't mm -hmm. work. And today, the situation, whereas even the Palestinians are saying, OK, this is, this is the situation. And I'm going to say this with a lot of love, without elements of the outside world pushing mm -hmm. for the Palestinian agenda, that we wouldn't even be having an issue. But mm -hmm. elements inside the United States and in, in Europe are pushing to solve mm -hmm. their guilt problem in all kinds of different ways and are pushing a Palestinian agenda, even though there is no correlation, no historical mm -hmm. correlation or parallel to, to pushing together people who have been okay change or moved i mean think about this yeah. the problem was created at the, at the end of world war ii millions hundreds of millions of people are displaced okay think about what happens in elsas lorraine think about what's going on in all of eastern europe after world war ii i mean people are moving mm -hmm. all uh there were refugees all over the world uh 
over time, the refugee problem was solved. I mean, these people are now living here. These people are now living here. Nobody says that somebody who was a refugee at 1945 uh, should be allowed to go back to his great-great-grandfather's homeland. By the way, including the Jews who were killed out of their homes in, in Poland and in Eastern Europe. There's only one group of people who the world is pushing to return to their homeland after three generations, and that's the Palestinian. That says to us that there's something more than just moral rights, politics. Mm -hmm. There's something else pushing yeah. this agenda. There is. It's a spiritual It's a spiritual thing. And I can look at it personally. I look at it and say, this is the devil himself. The devil is in the details behind the scenes. The UN, you know, you have uh, virtually uh, the, the whole UN is against Israel and presenting this pro-Palestinian cause. You have, is it UNESCO or, or uh, the other UN organization that says the Jews have no rights to the Western Wall even? And you look, you, well, you know, you, I mean. Everything is contested and everything is contested. What, what I, one of the things I heard a little while ago is that uh, they passed a resolution about the Temple Mount without even mentioning the Temple. Yeah. I mean, there's an argument that the Temple Mount never had a Temple. I mean, okay, then why is it called the Temple Mount? I mean, let's, let's, yeah. let's be a little bit, uh, uh, so there, there is an attempt to change history, mm -hmm. even, in order to fit it into a narrative mm -hmm. that, that is actually part of an agenda. Mm -hmm. By the way, history plays a role in, in part yeah. of these, and maybe that's also an, a, yeah. a whole subject that connects past history to present to prophecy. Yeah. I look at uh, City of David, for example. There's, I mean, everything there just screams, this was the homeland of the Jews from the beginning, you know, go back 3,000 years ago. Um, and then you have the different periods of time. And, and, I, and I love going to the City of David. I've been there with you. Like, I can't wait to go back. <laughs> That's come um, on, let's do it. And, uh, but I, I, I look at so many of the discoveries that are constantly taking place in the City of David. But I also know how the propaganda of the world works, this narrative. Eventually, they're going to come around. No, the Jews were never actually here in the city of David. They stole it from the Jebusites. You know, this, they stole it from this, the, the Canaanites. The, okay, the Canaanites. And the, uh, yes, our father, I still remember saying, oh, uh, you know, the Palestinians are the original Canaanites. I, I, I remember that. Oh yeah, I remember. I remember hearing that. So we go. Uh, 1940 hit. 1967. Uh, the uh, Jews win the war. 1967. They're attacked again. They get back. They actually get land. Uh, the West Bank. Um, you have the the Temple Mount. Um, the, okay. So the Gaza also correct. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, Israel conquers Golan the Sinai, Sinai Peninsula all the way down to the Suez Canal That's on one right. side. Uh, the, uh, the West Bank, which is basically Jordanian holdings on the West Bank of the Jordan River, meaning Judea, mm -hmm. Samaria, half of Jerusalem. And up on the Golan Heights, we push the Syrians away from the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and create a buffer that we call the Golan Heights. And that is the end of the war of 1967. We sigh a sigh of relief and let the pride go to our head. And, and that's part of the, the, the backdrop for the next war that comes a couple of years after that yeah. when they attempted to wipe us yeah. off the map the last time. The Yom Kippur War. The Yom Kippur yeah. War in 1973. Okay. Um, Israel's been fighting this war down through. The Palestinians realize that their Arab brothers are not going to solve the Palestinian problem. They're not going to bring them or give them mm -hmm. their, their nation back, even though the Arabs tried 
already a few times. So they go into a terror war using southern Lebanon as a base to attack Israel. That brings on what we call the 1981 First Lebanese War, where Israel goes into southern Lebanon to clear out terrorist elements that were using southern Lebanon as a place to attack. By the way, it's it's ludicrous for somebody who doesn't understand the situation. I mean, the way I like to illustrate it, I mean, I'm in Southern California right now. Uh, there's a border between you and Mexico. There's Tijuana on the other side. And just think about Tijuana being used as a, as a base for, for terrorists to either cross the border and massacre kids in schools in, 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 mm -hmm. in downtown San Diego or to fire rockets out of downtown Tijuana into downtown San Diego. How long would the United States be willing mm -hmm. to subject its citizens to that kind of threat? Mm -hmm. And we've been living in that kind of situation yeah. for many years. Yeah, you have. Uh, been living in that situation since you've existed as a nation again. You, as you, you've said before many a times, you just live in a very bad neighborhood, very nice, beautiful place, a, bad, bad, uh, a, a bad neighborhood. So 1981, you were in that war. I was in that war, um, in the thick of it. And we did push the Palestinians out of southern Lebanon. And I will say some of the things changed, and there was a movement, mostly, mostly led by the United States, to reach some kind of an agreement or appeasement of the Palestinian situation. Um, Oslo Accords probably, and, and by the way, I, I apologize, we're paraphrasing huge amounts of history here, but the Oslo Accords started to hand back parts of the West Bank and parts of, mm -hmm. of uh, Gaza to the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And basically, we were on the way to what a lot of people called some kind of roadmap that would lead to some kind of yeah. regional peace. That got stuck in the middle because the Palestinians, I don't think, are ready for any kind of arrangement no matter no, what. Never. No, never, not going to happen, no matter what. Uh, something like that were the, the actual words, I believe, that have been used. In well, the in order to tie this together, though, here's the interesting thing. The Arab world who saw the, the Palestinian problem as the main barrier between Israel and its Arab neighbors have realized, like the rest of us have realized, that the Palestinians aren't going to reach an agreement. Yeah. And now, and, and we saw that just now with your former administration, more and more of the Arabs have been saying quietly, okay, you know, the Palestinian problem is going to be solved if and when and how it's going to be solved. Not our problem. Let's start talking about some kind of connection and people more and more people are realizing on a political secular level mm -hmm. that Israel is not the problem in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Israel's the solution and not the problem. And that brings on our Abrahamic covenant yeah. that we're seeing uh, that is actually spreading so, out right now. So the Abrahamic covenant to me is fascinating. So let's shift to a couple of spiritual things. I know we're almost out of time, but still I want to get to them. And I still want to get to the oil and gas situation over there in Israel, because to me it's fascinating. And you've been uh, the most enlightening <laughs> on that subject out of anybody else I've ever talked to. But with the, let's go shift spiritually for just a minute. Okay. You were raised in a messianic home. Your dad was a pastor in Israel. Okay. And um, you grew up under under that. What was it like um, being a, a, a kid growing up in a Christian home in a Jewish world? Because this goes back to 1970s. Uh, yeah, well, we moved, we did Aliyah in 1971. You were four and, years old. Uh, no, uh, 1971 is a little bit older. Okay. We, we went, went to Israel, came back came to back. the States, okay. and then did I the final you. Aliyah in 1971. Okay. I think I was in third grade at the time. Okay. And again, we are um, 
Christian Jews, Jewish Christian, Messianic Jews, call it what you want, growing up in a Jewish environment. Here's a sentence that I heard many, many times as a kid. Um, finally, we have a Jewish state. And this is what we just now you know, laid mm -hmm. out here. We've got a Jewish homeland, a place where the Jews are allowed to be Jews and not persecuted for who they are. The worst persecution against the Jews was perpetrated by Christians. I mean, Christianity was horrific to, to the Jews down through the ages. And, and one of the questions I remember when, when the neighborhood, when the kid's in class, I mean, you're living in this Jewish environment for the first time in 2,000 years, there is a Jewish environment, there is a Jewish neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And uh, growing up, I remember this question of, we finally got a Jewish homeland. We've finally got a Jewish state. We're finally away from the Christians. What do we need Christians here for? And it's a legitimate question. I mean, think about yeah. how it looks like. And here's the thing. I grew up trying to convince my peers that Christians don't hate Jews. And they would come at me with history, with the pogroms, mm -hmm. with the Inquisition, with the Holocaust. And they said, what do you mean Christians don't look? And I said, no, there's different kinds of Christians. There's, there's Christians that do support Israel. There's, there are Christians that do love Israel. Uh, there's different kinds of Christianity, which was very interesting because for most Israelis, there's only one kind of Judaism. I mean, you can be more religious or less religious, but the Israelis yeah. don't really understand the diversity. Mm -hmm. And go try to explain to a 10-year-old that your dad is a pastor. And he says, what, he's a priest? You know, like, you know, and the priest. Uh -huh. And I said, no, he's not a priest, he's a pastor. Go explain to somebody who doesn't really understand Christianity what the difference, I'm not sure I really understand it sometimes, what the difference between a priest and a pastor is. And then go show them Christian love in a world where everybody is against Israel, mm -hmm. which I think to a certain extent connects to where we are right yeah. now. I mean, it's the job of Christians who believe in the Bible, who understand the Bible, who understand the prophecies to show Israel and the Jewish people Christian love. Yeah. And that's something that, that yeah. I think has happened a little bit more in the past. I'm seeing a backslide on, on the world arena on that one. But uh, one of the reasons I'm here is to remind the Jewish people that there is such a thing as Christian love. And, and, I, and uh, I'm not so sure it's, it's uh, out there as much as it should be um, either, but when, did you ever get beat up or anything like that? Oh, yeah, growing I got up? beat up a couple uh, of times. I because mean, because yeah. you're raised in a Christian home and, and not accepted. Well, think about I've, it. I persecution, yeah. Jewish persecution against Christians. I mean, that, yeah, I, 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 ask you, got, I can carry that flag. Yeah, there's, there's both. <laughs> <laughs> there's both. This is people. I have some uh, uh, Messianic Jewish friends, and they've told me all kinds of stories. But of, I will say that growing there's up a in change. Israel. I think that Israelis understand much more. Uh, one, of the things, one of the times I realized that change is when I, I remember exp trying to explain some of this to some, some of my Jewish peers, I think it was in the army, and then somebody came, comes to me and says, David, what is, in Hebrew it goes like this, evangelical. I said, where did you hear that? And he says, no, I've heard that there are evangelical Christians that don't hate us. And, and that was a major shift, I still remember, that yeah. was a major shift in, in how I perceived what yeah. was going on. Yeah, and, and there are some. There are. Praise the Lord. And I would say, from the Jewish perspective, 
I would agree. I can't understand. Here I am, a pastor. I can't understand all these differences within under the Christian name. Some of them really trouble me that carry the Christian flag because I we don't believe at all uh, the same things even regarding the Bible. So if I was Jewish looking at what I'm seeing, I would say the same thing, especially when I've seen the persecution. I understand it. I've done documentaries with uh, other people before Olivier Melnick and others I've done work with over anti-Semitism from the first century, going all the way back to the first century, um, and a lot of it involving uh, under the name of Christianity. Uh, Okay, so the Messianic movement is not huge yet, but there are people uh, that are are coming to know Yeshua over in Israel. uh, the One for Israel is an organization over there uh, that, that uh, uh, I think your brother is involved with them. Uh, I uh, think some partly, yes. And, uh, and then there are more and more, and, and we're seeing more and more messianic movements actually growing now in Israel. Uh, again, as a result of this change in, in mindset, they're much more public than they ever used to be. I mean, as a kid, we kind of yeah. kind of try to keep I it bet. a little bit secret. I bet. It's, 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 that's changing, and yeah. that's beautiful to watch. Yeah, you don't want to get beat up, so you, you learn, yeah, I want people to, yeah, I'm not so sure this is that much fun. Uh, okay, I'm going to shift gears again spiritually, but the temple, because uh, the Bible tells me that there will be a temple that's built again in the last days. Is there excitement among uh, groups of Israelis about building a temple again on the Temple Mount? Well, I'm going to give you a classical Jewish answer to any question is yes and no. Okay. Okay. So That sounds like something I would say too, by the way. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's start off with the no, that's an easy one. Uh, secular Israelis. Okay. The Temple on the Temple Mount mm-hmm. uh, brings us in, in direct a direct collision course with the, the Arab and the Muslim world. The third holiest yes, site for, for, mm-hmm. for the Muslims in the world is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, on the place where the temple will sit when it's rebuilt. So a lot of secular Jews are saying, wait a minute, that's a big balagan. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. where are we going with this? Uh, but there are a lot of Jews who are saying, wait a minute, here it comes. It, it, this is time. And there is a, a growing, um, I'm going to say, sense of of closeness to a future temple even among the jewish population in israel uh there's an organization that is actually preparing to to bring the temple back uh there are there are people who who specialize in in planning the third temple the actual physical temple institute the the temple institute and other organizations they're actually you know there's architectural plans for the temple itself uh the the vestments and and the different tools and and elements that are in the temple itself so so there is a growing um movement that is connected to that and me and you both saw an amazing 3d virtual reality oh, representation yeah. of yeah. the temple where you you sit put on those goggles and and you actually walk into the temple compound with with everything yeah. huge amazing by the yeah. way get your hands on it it's, it's amazing it is that's i would say this to everybody out there if you ever get a chance over in israel they show this at the western wall and uh, i had the privilege to see it elsewhere which i won't get into right now but it is absolutely it's amazing how real it is you're walking in 
the second temple period and walking it, it, up the steps you're walking up the steps you you can see there's the the temple itself and it is you're on the temple mount it is absolutely fascinating it is so realistic <laughs> i was looking up at the ceiling i'm looking behind me there's there's no, people behind me everywhere looking down virtual, it was, virtual reality is really really it weird. is something else did you have the opportunity to see the red sea party yes, virtual reality that was yeah. also awesome it's, it's pretty it's pretty amazing these things okay i'm gonna get way off track okay <laughs> so there is excitement about building a temple in jerusalem though you that's understand the complexity of that oh yeah oh yeah I, I i i really do in fact this conversation right now alone i'm gonna get all kinds of emails from people are telling me don't you realize uh, you have the gold dome there the temple should be at the city of david uh you can't really do that you're going to cause world war three i understand that but i also hear more and more conversation taking place if i were to go back 10 years or 15 years i would hear a little bit of it but now it seems like i'm hearing more well, excitement people are saying it's hey. gearing up to end times i mean yeah uh, i mean there's it's it's part of the the the, the conversation <laughs> And the temple issue has become a part of that part of the conversation. Yeah, it, it, it has. So from my perspective, we are living, we are so close to uh, the, the prophecies being fulfilled. We're right on the edge from everything I look at, especially regarding the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. I read uh, that there are many Jewish people over in Israel now that are believing, look, the Messiah's. Uh, coming Here at any comes. moment, so there's an excitement about it, and even in the in the Islamic culture, I, I read about people that are thinking, "Look, we are approaching what they would call uh, the last days too." Well, everything's so, shaken up right now. I, I mean, and, and more than anything, the COVID has given everybody a, a really a shakeup, and and different aspects are, are coming out, and and this is a time to talk about what's yeah. going on. Yeah, it is. Uh, I just find it so fascinating and a reminder we better be ready. Okay, last thing, because we, we really are out of out of time. <laughs> last thing. If, well, we have a lot more to do, but not today. Um, okay, Ezekiel 38, the Bible describes a battle that's going to happen that's going to involve uh, uh, Russia, Turkey, Iran. It's going to involve Sudan. It's going to involve Lydia, uh, Libya. They're going to come against Israel. And the reason why is because Israel has a product that especially it appears Russia, Turkey, and Iran want. Um, and I've believed for a long time that it is likely energy. And then several years ago, uh, there's been these massive gas fines, and now we find out well, that, what, in fact, when, I, I love this. The, I think it was the last time I was in Israel with you, so it's pre, pre-COVID Balagon. Um, <laughs> And you pointed out one of the gas lines, and then off the coast, I believe we were Caesarea. Caesarea, uh, you see it from Caesarea. Yeah, you can see out there in the in the water. You can see this, and you started talking about that, and then thinking Israel selling uh, gas to Europe, going through Cyprus, and what that would do to Russia. And, and you you made a statement. It was something along the lines of. Uh, Israel knows exactly what they're doing and what this is going to do to Russia. And I'm thinking about it going, wow, this is, this is, here we go. Here's the Bible. And and again, it's really interesting to kind of lay it out geopolitically. And then it's, you know, you come and superimpose the biblical narrative on top of that. 
Uh, Israel found huge amounts of natural gas. Now, think about this. Israel was a na nation that was created with no resources, and all of a sudden we've got more natural gas than we can use. Natural gas was found offshore, off the Mediterranean Sea, um, outside uh, Israel's coastal water, but inside Israel's territorial waters. Uh, two major finds and probably some more. Uh, Cyprus found a couple of natural gas uh, quantities off, off the shore. Not oil, by the way, but a lot of people believe if there's natural gas, there's oil. And we've got so much that we're pumping it into uh, onto the coast. That facility that you see from Caesarea is the liquefying facility, which means it's pumped there as natural gas it's liquefied pumped on we use it for generating electricity and you know israel's economy is going into natural gas but we've got so much more that we're selling it and there's a pipeline that goes literally from not far from caesarea that goes over the hills down through part of the jezreel valley mm -hmm. and crosses over into jordan okay now remember we're, we're riding along the road we're on the bus and you pointed out to that pipeline that was there out there and you tied all that that pipeline it's just pipeline when i saw is, that pipeline awesome it was awesome because think about this it's if I'd have told you 50 years that Israel would be in cahoots with the Jordanian selling them natural gas, you would have said, nah, I mean, yeah, no way, no way. And not only that, by the way, we're not only selling it to the Jordanians, we're selling it to the Egyptians. I was going to ask you about Egypt. We're selling it to the Egyptians. Yeah. So now there's an economic tie between Israel, Jordan and Egypt that ties into Saudi Arabia with all kinds of things. And all of a sudden yeah. we've got this kind of kind of group coming together in the Middle East. On the other hand. Um, the plan is to put a pipeline that goes from our natural gas finds not towards the east, towards Israel, but towards the west of Cyprus, and to hook that up to Greece. Now, Israel has very good relationship both with Cyprus and Greece, and if it hooks up to Greece, now we're on the ground in Europe. Yeah, and that's not going to make... Russia well, that's happy. going to make two people, two two nations, very yeah. very upset. I could think of two of them. Well, yeah, well, two of them. <laughs> well, let's start off with with the less obvious one, the uh, Turks, mm -hmm. who believe yeah. that they're on their way to becoming another sultan or another empire, mm -hmm. and they see that gas going right next to their borders, and they say, "Wait a minute, what about us?" And and there's a growing tension in the Eastern Mediterranean, okay, uh, between Israel and the Turks. And and again, remember, Turkey used to be an a, a pretty close ally of Israel in the past, and now it's like a black cat has walked between us. Uh, so the Turks are actually going in a different direction, uh, including antagonizing the United States. And you can understand the ramifications. Now, the Turks have been no lovers of Greece down through mm -hmm. the history. So we're in cahoots with the, Greece, the Greeks. That pipeline is going to go right off the edge of, of uh, Turkish areas of, of, how do you say, control. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's driving Erdogan crazy. I, I bet it is. I, I, I've read where uh, they are desperately trying to uh, to develop their own gas fines. Um, they found some that are outside of their territory, uh, trying to claim it as their own, and they see this. They're being completely cut out. And, you know, and, and Russia and Turkey and Iran have not always been best friends, for a lack of other terms. No. Uh, However, something's going to unite them. 
Well, it, here, let, let's, it, let's tie in the Russians, okay? Because the main supplier of natural glass to Europe until now has been the Soviet Union mm -hmm. or, or the Russians, okay? Now, if there is a pipeline that connects Israel's gas finding, which are considered, some people say, as big as the northern, uh, northern uh, how do you say, northern Atlantic mm -hmm. uh, gas deposits, uh, if we can tie those into Europe, we are in direct conflict, economic conflict, with Russia to supply gas. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have the connector between Turkey and Russia. And, and, and that's starting to sound biblical. It, it is. So you look at that, you look at the, the uh, friendly terms because of money, because of gas, Jordan and Egypt. Uh, and then you look at Abrahamic Accords. We live in a very fascinating world, to, to say the least. It's going to be more and more interesting. It is. I know we have a lot more to talk about, but I, I need to end it here. Uh, thank you very much for taking wow. this time uh, with us. This is fun. It, it is a lot of fun. And uh, I need to have a lot more of these. I wish I could come over to Israel right now, but let's, let's do but it. Not, not as soon as you know me, as soon as we can get there, we will be there. Listen, I want to thank everybody for watching uh, this, and uh, I, my hope is that you will be blessed and you that you were blessed with watching this again. Uh, thank you, David, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Until next time, God bless. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.